This morning, we're going to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. And uh, for that reason, the ushers will not come down the aisles to receive the offering at the end of the service. But as you exit today, you can place the Hey, I'm Here cards into the baskets that the ushers will have at the door for the offering. And uh, of course, the message will be quite a bit shorter this morning to allow time for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But we do want to continue in our study of the books of First and Second Timothy with a look at a short passage in First Timothy chapter 2. If you're just joining us uh, for our summer study, these two books were written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was the person God called to set in order for us more than anyone else a clear understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ what it means that he provided our salvation on the cross, how we receive that, how we partake of the benefits of what Jesus has done, and how we live that out. Paul's letters to Timothy in First and Second Timothy are particularly focused on maintaining the teaching of truth, the right understanding of the gospel in the churches, along with practical guidance for life in the churches, including uh, the support of widows, how to ordain and select elders and deacons, things of this nature. The passage we're looking at today is focused upon prayer. You'll see it on the screen now in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. This apostle Paul wrote these words. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So the apostle Paul begins the passage, first of all, or as of first importance, he calls the early Christian church and he calls us to pray. And he calls us first to pray for all people with all kinds of prayers, we see in verse 1. It would seem, based on these words, that prayer is incredibly important, necessary, critical to the unfolding of God's work. People often wonder why that is. Sometimes people will ask, if God is all-powerful, if he is sovereign, as you say in the church, if he is omnipotent, he can do what he wants, why do we need to pray? And the fact is, God is omnipotent, he is sovereign, he does have all authority, he's ruling over his creation today, but he has chosen to work through the prayers of his people. It's one of the ways God includes us in the work of his kingdom. God loves our prayers because he loves our fellowship. And he gives us this privilege of entering into the work that he does on the earth because that's the way he's chosen to work. 
few minutes ago, Dinesh Chand shared how God, when he first called him, led him, his wife, to focus on prayer for 18 months before getting the clear guidance they needed about their ministry. That's because God has chosen to work through the prayers of his people. And he's called us to pray for all people everywhere. Secondly, he calls us to pray specifically for those who are in high positions. Pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. A little later in his writing to Timothy, the Apostle Paul said this, For all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who live godly in Christ will be persecuted. So the words on the screen, to pray for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, doesn't necessarily mean that we will not suffer persecution. In the days when Paul wrote, commentators believe that there was a particularly evil ruler in power by the name of Nero. One commentator I read this week described him as fiendish. He was known for putting Christians to death, for feeding them to the lions, for using human torches, the bodies of Christians, to, to light his garden at night. He was an evil and ungodly man, yet Paul says pray for all people and specifically pray for those who are, who are leaders, governing authorities, kings and all who are in high positions. Focus our prayers upon them. Most weeks during the year, I get to read the ham hey, here cards that you fill out on Sunday, drop in the basket. Lots of needs, lots of prayer requests. And every now and then, somebody will just express their discouragement with what is going on in the world around us, particularly noting the political divisiveness in our own nation right now. I think part of it is we have so much input from various news sources. We're just overloaded with stuff that kind of uh, brings in into our view all of this divisiveness, and it's discouraging for many people. And uh, many feel like, well, what's the use of, of praying or doing anything about it? I can't change this. I want to encourage you with what the Bible teaches us about prayer. The Bible teaches us that the prayers of one person who's committed to God can impact an entire nation. And Scripture's filled with examples of this happening. Moses is one example in his prayers for the people of Israel. His prayers spared the entire nation. Daniel is another example of someone whose prayers affected his people. Nehemiah is another. Queen Esther is another who through her fasting and intervention spared her people. One of the most interesting examples of someone whose prayers affected his nation was the prophet Elijah. Elijah is particularly interesting because the Apostle James in his letter in the New Testament that bears his name points us, regular Christians, to Elijah as an example of how we should pray. 
Elijah lived under the reign of the evil King Ahab and his doubly evil wife Jezebel. And yet his prayer affected his nation in a dramatic way. In reading from the New Testament book of James, in a passage where the Apostle James calls Christians to pray for one another that we may be healed, we read these words. The prayer of a righteous person, singular, just talking about one person now. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And wrapped around his prayer was something significant God did in that nation. Now somebody may say, yeah, but Elijah was a great prophet. The whole point James is making is this. Let me read it again. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That's like saying he was only human. He had the same weaknesses and struggles with which we struggle. He was just one person, and he was only human. And James is saying, don't forget examples like that of Elijah's when you despair that your prayers will make no difference. The Apostle Paul is calling us as believers to pray for all people, particularly though for kings and those in high positions. And on this week, when we celebrate the great freedoms we enjoy here in the United States of America, I want to encourage us to pray for our nation. And I want to suggest a way that you and I could do that this week. By praying five minutes a day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, just five days, about five things in our nation. Choose something each day you want to focus your prayers on. The needs are many in our country. Pray for our leaders to have wisdom, discernment, guidance. The opioid crisis, the drug crisis in our nation has just, has just gone to horrible uh, levels with many young adults dying, beginning with uh, opiates and going to heroin. And that, as a result, has really overloaded our foster care system. There are so many children in foster care now, there are not enough people to take them into their homes and help raise them. We know we still have racial issues in our nation. There's school shootings, immigration issues, international issues. Pick the issue, and I want to ask you to join me in the next five days. And just take, in five, take five minutes each day and maybe listen to five minutes less news. Read five minutes less news and focus some prayers on God's blessing upon this wonderful nation in which we live. That God would do his great work. Bring wisdom into these critical international issues that our leaders face. They're so complex. I'm going to pause right now and just pray that God will help us to be a people who take up this call to pray for our nation. Father, we know that even your servant, the Apostle Paul, said we don't know how to pray as we ought. But the Holy Spirit has been given to help us. And so we pray this day that the Holy Spirit will help each and every one of us to learn to pray as we should.
for all people, as you tell us to do, but specifically for those in authority, in governing authority, at all levels of our government, those who are making decisions about critical issues. Father, fill them with wisdom. Fill them with wise judgment, discernment, and guidance. Pour out your spirit upon our nation so that we will see and recognize and honor our dependence upon you. And Lord, we do want to say thank you. Thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy. May your blessing be poured out on the United States of America. And would you help us to be people who pray for this nation in which we live. Amen. Finally, in this call to prayer, the Apostle Paul urges us to pray specifically for the salvation of all people. When he calls us to pray as of first importance, he says, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he says something that most commentators believe was an early Christian creed. That is, these words were part of a statement of faith that Christians might have recited together when they came together for worship, like we'd recite the Apostles' Creed. And these words were apparently part of it. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself is a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul is calling us to pray that all people will embrace the truth that is expressed in this creed. That there is, first of all, one God, only one God, the true God. Israelites believe that in the Old Testament, God called them under the leadership of Moses to recognize that there's really only one God, not many gods as the nations around them believe, but one true God, the creator, the sustainer, the ruler of all. We Christians believe that as well. And we believe that this one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, the Trinity. And this one God is also the one mediator between God and men. God the Son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, would leave heaven to come and live on earth. And he would fill this role of mediator. Now, a mediator is typically considered as a, a go-between or a negotiator or an arbiter, someone that stands between two parties, perhaps to resolve a dispute. Jesus is the perfect mediator between God and humanity because as a human being, Jesus could not only represent us, but experience our sufferings. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are. And when he died on the cross, he could take our place as a real flesh and blood human being. But Jesus was not merely human. He was also fully God as the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Son of God. And as such, he was sinless. Therefore, the perfect one to stand before the Father to represent us. And further, to give himself as the one ransom. Now, we think of a ransom as payment to someone who's been 
kidnapped or payment to buy someone out of the bondage of slavery or something like that. The Bible says the payment for us, that required for our forgiveness, for our acceptance with God the Father. The payment was Jesus Christ himself. There on the cross, when he gave up his life, when he was nailed to those cross beams and shed his blood, the prophet Isaiah says, our iniquities were laid upon him. He bore them. He took them. You can think of it as Jesus taking your place. Jesus bearing your judgment. Jesus bearing your hell so you could share his heaven. Jesus taking our place. Just prior to his going to the cross to become the ransom for each of us, Jesus shared a meal with his disciples, and during that meal he instituted what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. You may have heard it referred to as the Eucharist in some church traditions. It's a partaking of bread and, and juice or wine that calls us to remember, reflect upon, celebrate that which Jesus did on the cross when he gave his body and he shed his blood to be the ransom for us. The Apostle Paul writes about it this way. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're about to do. And if you choose to partake of the bread and the juice, you are making a visible proclamation <clears throat> of the fact that you have received the benefits <clears throat> of the giving of Jesus' body and the shedding of his blood. But then we read these words of caution <clears throat> from the Apostle Paul. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What I'd like to do now is take a couple minutes to pray and allow us to quietly examine ourselves to be sure that our trust is in fact in Jesus, that we have sincerely embraced what he has done, that we're truly his followers. This is not some mere religious ritual without meaning. It's the expression of a sincere faith in Jesus Christ. And so would you join me as we pray about that and prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Father, would you speak to us now? Would you prepare each one of us? Would you show us whether our greatest need is to place faith in what Jesus has done on the cross for us, if we've not done that before? Perhaps our greatest need is to confess some sin before you. Perhaps our greatest need is to forgive someone who has wronged us and we have not yet forgiven them. 
Lord, give us your grace for these things now, we pray. Amen.